Washington, D.C. This is Warbird Radio. On this episode of Warbird Radio Presents, we sit down with a World War II fighter pilot and surprise him with a flight in his former plane. Stay tuned. Warbird Radio Presents, the Ralph Maloof story, starts right now. Ralph Maloof is a lifelong inventor, a pioneer problem solver for supersonic flight. His adventures have literally taken him from wings to Walt Disney. With over 90 years' experience, his knowledge library is absolutely vast. You know, I sat down with Ralph during aviation's largest gathering, the annual Experimental Aircraft Association's Air Venture Convention in Oshkosh, Wisconsin. And like most attendees, Ralph was there to enjoy the airplanes, the camaraderie of it all. But yes, even at 90-plus, he was there to sell aircraft engines. His zest for life and willingness to continue inventing solutions for all of our peculiar problems made me really want to meet him. And of course, surprise him with the flight. Here now, in his own words, is Ralph Maloof. My name is Ralph Maloof, and I'm from California. I was born in a place I don't remember called Calexico, and that's because my dad was a Cadillac distributor in Mexico. <laughs> well, Southern California. But eventually your, your your Uncle Sam called and said, hey, I need you. Yeah, he didn't call. I called. I thought that if I got drafted, I would be sunk. So <laughs> when I turned 17 and a half, that allowed me to apply, and I did. men are aviation cadets. A short while ago, they too were average American boys from average American families. In the near future, they will have learned many things. How to pilot a plane. If you're 17, you can enlist in the Air Corps Reserve. There are things to do and places to go, and the Army Air Forces will supply both to healthy, adventurous, and patriotic young men with a will to smack the enemy where it hurts the most. I trained in... Uh... P-38s, P-39s, and P-40s. Uh, when I was assigned a, a combat uh, group, um, because I was a, so junior, you know, still being a teenager and all that stuff, I was sent off to a, a P-40 uh, squadron on a really tiny island. So I learned how to land without being able to see anything, because I'm so short I couldn't see over the you know, engine. <laughs> it's an island called Shemya. It's at the end of the uh, Lucian Island chain. And uh, there was only one fighter group in that whole Air Force. The rest of them were bombers. They were flying off to Japan from there. The goal of the original fighter planes in that part of the Aleutian Islands was to retake the Aleutian Islands from the Japanese who invaded, I think, in early 1942. The Japanese were defeated. They evacuated mostly, and the fighter group was left there. Can't imagine why. I mean, who would <laughs> want that place? Um, but then uh, later in the war, the I guess the uh, planners 
thought that the naval base in the Curiel Islands could be captured and used as a jumping-off point for the invasion of the Northern Islands, uh, which were only 500 miles away. So, uh, so the, our mission at that time was to, number one, bomb the hell out of everything there, sink the ships there, uh, close the mouth of the submarine cave that they had there. Um, and it was, like most permanent Japanese installations, it was well protected. And you did your part? Actually, I think the bombers did part. Uh, it was a 10-hour round trip, so we had to wait until we got P-38s that were modified in a certain way that they could fly 2,000 miles with all all of the bells and whistles and don't go anywhere without bombs and that kind of stuff. We were all set. We did our practice flights to Paramashu and, and got shot at a bit and uh, found out that getting home was harder than getting there. <laughs> um, lost quite a few, actually, and we didn't do any damage at all. The magic day was just a few months after the surrender. Saved us all, I guess. Do you think about the guys that that you were out there with much? Or has that been so long ago now that it's all faded? I don't. I mean, you know, um, <clears throat> most everybody survived. There are only about eight or ten that didn't make it. And, uh, I, you know, you you can't dwell on something like that and the memories fade. I don't think about it at all. It was a huge part of your life back then, and, and everybody today, when they see a P-38 pilot or someone who flew a, an aircraft in World War II, they, they, they want to come and talk to you. And I, what I want to know is what you did after the war. What oh, wow. what what became of this, this P-38 hotshot pilot, the guy that flew a fighter off of a, a tiny island in the Aleutians? What well, did you take away from that experience? I have to clarify one thing. I spent most of my time avoiding being a hero. Uh, I just tried not to do <laughs> what heroes do. So I can't make any claims at all to, uh, you know, accolades are not deserved by me. There are some real heroes, and we ought to save the accolades for them, of those that are left, not many, I suppose. I just did, I was a, a routine fighter pilot, mm -hmm. and uh, people don't realize that all of the aircraft of World War II, including uh, bombers, were basically unreliable, dangerous machines. And to uh, accentuate that, we gave pilots maybe eight or ten months of training before they made their first mission. That today would be thought of as crazy. Well, more emergency makes people do crazy things. You don't have to be crazy to take a crazy order and execute. And uh, I suppose that explains the huge losses, mm. stunning losses. We don't talk about that. Well, one out of four fighter pilots died in the war. <laughs> we don't talk about that. 
God knows how many bombers went down that we don't talk about. So when we see the total number, well, we only lost about 400,000 people in World War II to combat. You have to think about how many of those were made up of the Air Forces, the Navy in particular. That's unbelievable. That's what I would say the title hero belongs to. I would be embarrassed to be called a hero, actually. It's just a shame to use that word. Um, I did nothing but waste a lot of bullets and bombs. I don't really think I did much of anything. While the nation groans under a mountain of commodities, we risk months of unemployment. Industry and government must prepare to overcome the known physical obstacles to post-war prosperity so that G.I. Joe's dreams of peace are realized and the opportunity for every American to contribute to a rising standard of living. Well, before the war, I was a teenager, but I was a, a teenager inventor, and I did a lot of stuff and invented a few interesting things. I was uh, very interested in aviation from, from the time I was a toddler almost. And uh, uh, I liked things that uh, could fly, and I got very interested in uh, modeling. And I started inventing ways to join the radio control model crowd. Ma mainly it was a crowd of adults, <laughs> and, uh, and I wanted to join them. So I invented stuff that people hadn't thought of yet. Um, and um, fortunately, I had an older brother, Bill, who was a superior craftsman, <clears throat> and he he went along with my crazy ideas and helped me. And we actually accomplished something that had never been done before <laughs> uh, in modeling, and I I believe it's still being used today. And what was that? Um, modeling the cockpit and then making everything between the cockpit and the, and the model uh, that you needed to, to make the airplane think that you were in it. I mean, the model think that, you, that it had a pilot. Naturally became an aeronautical engineer because that's how I got started. And, uh, and I, I was, uh, I guess you'd say, an accomplished aviator. And, and I was very interested in finding out why you couldn't go faster than the speed of sound. So I concentrated on on that problem and I did a lot of research too. And of course hugely expensive wind tunnels were paid for by the government, made it possible to test things that we used to find out by dropping bricks out of airplanes, you know. <laughs> um, and that got me started. I I really was lucky because somebody else had in invented the transonic wind tunnel and they gave it to me to, to try to make it work. So that wouldn't have happened without a really smart guy doing the dirty work, you know. And that gave me a clue that you didn't need a rocket to, to thrust your way through the speed of the sound barrier, as we called it back then. I really got bored with that, though, after a while. Um, and it wasn't that everything had been learned that could be learned. It was just that 
a few basics were learned, and then, you know, it was dog work after that. So, <laughs> How do you inspire a team? Because I, I know you can't do it all yourself. How do you inspire a team on a project like this, which back then would have been, I mean, almost unobtainable? Do it like my mother did. <clears throat> Finish your project before you clean up your bedroom. <laughs> <laughs> Just that simple. How, what, what's the chance you'll hear that today? Yeah. <laughs> Hurry up. <laughs> so I think getting young people started is the hardest job. Now, I, I believe in, innovating is natural. It's, it's part of the human spirit. But it needs a push. Perhaps one of Ralph's best qualities is his ability to embrace change and welcome adventure. I wasn't kidding about the wings to Walt Disney thing. Literally, one day, Walt Disney called him. How do you do, everyone? This is Hank Weaver. For the past year, this signature has announced the opening of Disneyland, the show. Now it announces the opening of Disneyland, the place. I'm a diversified inventor. I didn't want to get stuck, and I love adventure. So I very quickly, after about, I don't know, five or six years buried in research. And I can tell you right now, I was never any good at arithmetic. So I had to take the advice of mathematicians, which usually turned out to be wrong. And I got tired of that, so I grew up on an orange grove farm. We didn't call it a farm, we called it a ranch. Um, And every 11 years, we would lose the crop to freezing. And I thought, why every 11 years? You know, that got me really interested in, I was already interested in meteorology anyway. So I noticed that a couple of companies were making big blower things that were on tall towers in the middle of orchards. And I sort of understood the basics of it, what the seasonality of it was all about. And and what what was the free temperature in space, and what was there to radiate into, and all that stuff. And that led to some important inventions in agricultural frost protection. I became, without my knowledge, I became uh, well-known in that subject. <laughs> and Mr. Walt Disney called me up at home one night and said, Say, we have a problem down here in Anaheim. <laughs> Would you come down and look it over and see if you can help us? And I loved Walt Disney anyway. I already had a contract from a, a company that made the big blowers that were in. They were using air, uh, war surplus aircraft propellers. I knew that was wrong. I knew plenty about fans by this time. So I agreed to work on that, and I... Uh, invented a whole bunch of things that made really cheap, gigantic fans possible, and where to put them, and what they did, and what they couldn't do, and the nonsense of burning smudge pots and all that stuff. And then for Mr. Disney, I invented some other stuff, because they had a lot of uh, highly vulnerable tropical plants in their new Disneyland thing. They were very happy about that and called me to work on other things over the years. Ralph's one of the most amazing men I've had the pleasure of meeting. His beliefs on a long, happy life are directly tied to his greatest loves. Oh, 
Jobs. And, and there's a P-38 that's here. I sat in it. And that's what I understood. You got to <laughs> sit in it. Did, did you feel right at home again? No, I didn't. And, and when I was escorted up to it, I thought, this can't be. This is a gigantic airplane. How in the world could a little kid like me fly this? <laughs> Uh, when I sat in the cockpit and it all started coming back to me, but, hmm. you know, some of the good and a little bit of the bad. So it was a joyful experience overall, though, and I'm grateful for it. Um, did, you, did you fly after the war? Oh, yeah, I flew As for a pilot. 40 years. What did, what did you like the most about it? Um, the freedom, mostly, yeah. I owned a whole bunch of different airplanes. My favorite being a, a replica of the Benny Howard Mr. Mulligan Racer. Oh, yeah. The, the, his company built hundreds of those things for Navy, and they used them for instrument training. Mm -hmm. A set of controls in the back seat mm -hmm. and a curtain, you know, so that you couldn't see out. And then there was a pilot or two up front. I took all that junk out of there because I was always afraid of flying instruments. I didn't trust them. <laughs> and I made it back into Mr. Mulligan. <laughs> Put different gears in the supercharger so it would go faster and painted it white. <laughs> and that was my favorite airplane. But it was a gas guzzler. <laughs> Aren't they all? <laughs> yeah. Before fuel prices went out of sight, I actually stumbled onto Benny Howard himself hmm. uh, at, in uh, Burbank, California at the airport there. Uh, he was not at that time working for Douglas Aircraft, I think. And uh, he, saw, he saw me taxi up. Hmm. And he introduced himself. And I... I believed him because he had a terrible limp. And we started talking about it, and he said, why don't you put a speed ring on that thing? And I said, what's a speed ring, you know? And he explained how he got a lot more speed out of Mr. Mulligan by changing the cowling. And I actually did that. And did uh, it go faster? Oh, yeah, yeah about 12% or something like that faster. It broke 200 mile an hour cruise. But it didn't change the fuel consumption at all. <laughs> well, you're not running around in a Prius if you're flying yeah, that. Yeah. That's for sure. What are you working on today? What do you keep your mind busy with? Well, I have to remind you that I'm 90 plus. Uh, I'm half owner of a aircraft engine company that that's called Revmaster Aviation, and my partner Joe Harvath, who is a genius started the company as a, a remanufacturer of Volkswagen engines. Mm -hmm. You're still you're still inventing though. You're still engaged and yeah, well, we, is no, that the secret? That. Is that the secret to keeping an active mind well into your 90s? My opinion is that it doesn't hurt. <laughs> Beyond that I, you know, there's there's science and then there's uh, what most people believe and that is you have to get old, and there's no way to prevent it. And that's just not true. <laughs> you do have to get old, but I think you can retain some semblance of what you were in your best day. Without halfway trying, that makes you a survivor. You can do everything wrong and give it all up, or you can do a few things right. And I think that 
long life is related to the fact that you don't give up your youthful ideas. That's it. Nothing more to it. So if youthful ideas are the secret to a long life, we thought we'd help Ralph connect with one of his favorite fighter planes from his youth, the North American P-51 Mustang. Our friend Cowden Ward from Freedom Flyers was in on the plan and stopped by to meet Ralph at the end of our interview and surprise him with the flight. This is always my favorite part. Just listen. Have we met, actually? I want to introduce you to my friend here. This is this is Cowden Ward Jr. over here. Cowden, we, I don't know. You know, you look a little familiar, of course. But, you look uh, familiar to me. Well, <laughs> I guess we were meant to be. <laughs> Cowden, yeah. Cowden's got a P-51 out there that he'd like to show you, if you that's okay. that, and uh, I'd like to sit in it, actually. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, Cowden, tell us about your Mustang. Tell, tell me about Pecos Bill, just well, a little bit. Pecos Bill was built in 45. I mean, yeah, 45. It never saw action, so it went straight to Canadian Reserve. And then from there, after several years there, it kind of started going through private ownerships, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, I ended up with it about three years ago when I was looking for a 51. And uh, Pecos and I have been running pretty good for three years. And, you know, Pecos Bill never uh, had a great history of missions. All these other Mustangs got history of different uh, squadrons, et cetera. So... Mm-hmm. We created our own mission, uh, and that mission is actually uh, making available uh, flights uh, to World War II veterans, complimentary. Uh, so we've taken over 130 World War II veterans so far. Wow. We've got our own little insignia, a little V with an eagle in it. So, uh, you know, if you want to sit in it, uh, that'd be great. Uh, if you want to go for a flight, that'd even be better. So it's up to you. Well, I, I have to leave tomorrow morning, so that's probably out of the question, but... What are you doing in the next 30 minutes? What? (laughs) So sorry, we stopped recording so fast because Ralph literally just stood up and went for the door. He was ready. Cowden and his crew strapped him in the back seat, and they even had a special control stick installed so Ralph and the other veterans they'd give rides to could fly the Mustang once again. So, with the push of the throttle, Ralph was young again. sun began to set, Ralph and Calvin came taxiing back in the P-51. A small crowd had gathered to welcome him home, and it was well worth the wait. I just was the luckiest guy in the world, and you're applying. <laughs> so, how was it after so many years? It was like yesterday. Yeah? <laughs> It's like riding a bicycle? No, not not quite, but, you know, at first I couldn't remember the G-forces, and then when he gave me the controls, I did. Yeah. Yeah. It was just a ball. Well, great. Great. And, you know, an experience of a lifetime, if you come right down to it. Sure, sure. Who else could ever have that? (laughs) (laughs) So when was the last time you flew this? One of these? Uh, I think it was about 63 years ago. Okay. That's not right. You flew 
15 minutes ago. <laughs> I was in the front seat, hanging on. That's right. But I didn't have rudder pedals. Well, I'm sorry. <laughs> he did a great deal. Absolutely. Great. Great. We had fun. That, that was, there's no way to describe that fun. That's the problem. Oh. <laughs> Fantastic. Here we go. All right. <laughs> oh, now I'm back to earth. This is <laughs> Thank you all. Uh, I don't know how to thank you, actually. Thank Cowden. I, I can't. I can't find the words. <laughs> Ralph, this is our thank you to you. Yes, sir. Thank you. Oh, I don't know what to say about that. I just did my job, right? <laughs> That's what you always say, and I don't know if I can buy that. That's what everybody said. I'm just doing my job. Sometimes you don't know what your job is, but you do it anyway. So when it's all said and done, what does Ralph Maloof want us to remember about him? Well, he said the same thing he remembers about his favorite mentors, his parents. Gigantic mess that my heirs will have to clean up so they'll have to see all of the stuff that I left behind. And they will say about me <clears throat> what I have what I have said about my my parents. Mm. They were just fantastic. Mm. That's it. Thanks for your time. My pleasure. There you have it. Ralph Maloof, inventor, mentor, and all round incredible man. My sincere thanks to Cowden Ward and the Freedom Flyers for taking him flying. For more information on Freedom Flyers and how you can help, just visit the quick link at the bottom of the show story. Until next time, I'm Matt Jolly. Thanks for listening. I love inventing things, and I still do. I, I applied for my last patent when I was about 85, and it issued. So, nothing to it. Still going strong. Yeah, I think so. Yeah.